Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him up on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give you, if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The word of the Lord. Well, today we are starting our work on the way. Uh, the way is an important phrase in the Bible. John the Baptist prepares the way of the Lord. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And uh, the early Christians weren't called Christians. That's a term that gets moved later. What the early Christians called themselves was followers of the way. Followers of the way. And so we are doing some reflection, thinking about the way of Jesus. And the challenge for me is that you all have been reading, a lot of you have been reading along a lot of you just did it in Sunday school, and uh, so now I have to talk about it. Um, now, the, the challenge there is you've already heard a lot about these stories. Uh, the other challenge is these are really, really rich stories. So I doubt, even in your reading and in your Sunday school, that you figured it all out. Um, there's a lot to be said, but I'm going to kind of say my piece of these stories or, or a particular thought for me. In thinking about the way of Jesus, we read the Bible and to find out what it means to follow Jesus, and immediately we're stuck with a problem. Immediately we realize that these words were written to a culture and in a language that is 2,000 years ago, okay? This book is an ancient book. It speaks of a world that we are not in, and there's always a danger when we read the Bible that we fail to see the lenses that we bring to a text uh, when we try to read it as if it was written yesterday. 
And we're always, we can never totally do it, but we're always trying to get past our own biases of our culture and trying to read the Bible for itself. So what we have to do is we have to embark on an exercise of imagination. We have to try to the best of our ability, and incomplete as it will always be, to read this text as if we were the original audience. So what would somebody imagine in your head? What would somebody in the first century reading these stories read? What would they be thinking? And so today I want you to imagine that you are a first century Jew a member of God's chosen people living under the, Ro- the governance of the Roman Empire. And your entire life, you have heard all these stories and been asked to see yourself as a part of all these stories, the story of Israel, the history of Israel. But really, they're your story. So let's think through the story of Israel. It begins with creation. God makes a good world with humanity as his pinnacle, his crowning achievement. But humanity falls and does not live up to God's intention. And the whole book starts with this question of what will God do? After some time, God calls a man named Abraham, promises to start a people through him, that through those people, all the nations of the world will be blessed. The problem is that Abraham at that time is about 75 years old and has no children. So how are we going to have a nation through him? Well, we have this miraculous birth, this miraculous child that then is going to be part of the nations. Several generations later, the descendants of this family end up in Egypt to survive a famine, but they become slaves because the Pharaoh ends up not remembering who these people are, and he's threatened by how many people they have. In fact, he does something very cruel and murders all the firstborn male children just to try to control the population as if they were animals. They don't stay there, though. God calls a man named Moses to lead an exodus. After 10 plagues, Moses leads the people through the parted sea and back towards the promised land. The people, though, don't do what God wants them to do again. So Moses leads the people and for 40 years in the wilderness. In fact, the very first time they get out in the wilderness, they're finally getting ready to go to the promised land. Moses goes up onto the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and they face their temptation, and they end up making a golden calf and worshiping it instead of worshiping the true God. Finally, after 40 years, Joshua leads the people across the Jordan River, by the way, my favorite river, and uh, into the promised land, And they begin the the conquest of the land. They start to take over this land that was promised to them. After a time of judges, they eventually get kings. And under the leadership of King Solomon, the, the, the place that they were worshiping God at, this movable tabernacle, becomes a temple. But they don't get to keep that temple. They fail to stay true to God and end up removed from their land in exile. They go away into other nations, but miraculously, God brings all your people back. And you have heard these stories your whole life. These not just any stories, they're your stories. And you've been encouraged your whole life to read yourself into them. That you're in exile, that you're in Babylon, that you're in Egypt, that you have trouble keeping your heart true to God. Through the prophets, you know 
starting with a man named Elijah, this sort of larger-than-life character who wore an animal skin cloak, a fur, and a leather belt around his waist. You've been promised that God was true to your people, even though you weren't true to him. The promise was that there's a Messiah coming. There's somebody that is going to make things right. And, and you have to assume that that Messiah means he's going to kick the Romans out. That, that the current status, how can you be God's chosen people and still be in exile? Even though you're in your land, you're still under the Roman authority. A later prophet named Malachi discerned that someone in the spirit and power of Elijah would return to you before this Messiah would come. And so all the time, as a first century Jew, you're telling stories, your stories. And you're looking forward to the day when the Messiah would come. And before the Messiah would come, somebody like Elijah was going to come and uh, to, to lead you and to prepare the way. But still, you're not free. You're under the Roman authority. So the debate around the dinner table, the debate around the community was, well, what do we do now? What do we do now while we're waiting for this Messiah? And in all these stories, what's the one thing that's been similar? Is that every time we get to another stage of the story, you as a people fail. You as a people turn away from God. And so how do we live for God now? What does God require of us in the moment, in the first century? And different groups are debating this. The Pharisees see that the important thing is zeal. That what you got to do is fight for all those who are opposed to God. And so they're just aggressive. Zealots are even worse. The zealots, you'll hear about the zealots in the scriptures, they want rebellion. Let's start a fight. Okay, let's get some weapons and let's take this thing back. The priests and the scribes, they tend to sort of seek the peace. They sort of say, as long as the Romans are letting us worship in our own way, well, we'll sort of let that happen. Now, let me take you to a place named Qumran. Qumran is near the Dead Sea. Um, actually, uh, in the 1940s, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in a cave right here uh, in this area. There was a group there called the Essenes, and the Essenes had a different view. The Essenes said, what we need to do is keep holy and keep separate from the world. And so what they wanted to do was be ultra-holy, ultra-separate, and a big part of the Essenes was ceremonial cleanliness. Okay, they have pools, you, you can still uh, see pictures of the pools that the Essenes had, where you would walk in one set of stairs, immerse yourself in water, and then walk out another set of steps. If you had been around something like a dead body or something that would make you unclean, you would go through the water and come out a different set of steps, new and fresh and clean. Now, it's not clear that John, the, the cousin of Jesus, was in a scene. Uh, but the way he acts and the way he speaks suggests that maybe he might have been one of these scenes. If you were a first century Jew reading this and you read about John, you'd probably guess, this guy's probably not a Pharisee. He's probably not a zealot. This guy's probably in a scene or has some Essene tendencies. So we can look at the map here. Uh, yes, it worked. You can see Qumran and, uh, near the Dead Sea and then the little trek that it would be to the Jordan River. And probably at some point, um, John heads this way. He dresses in camel's hair with a leather belt, giving a message, uh, baptizing people in the water. Probably uh, he's using a symbol that the Essenes used of cleanliness 
but he's currently doing his own uh, uh, spell of it. He's right here in the Jordan River. The Jordan River, we would, if, if the Jordan River was in western Pennsylvania, we would call it a crick, okay? <laughs> it's really not that big, particularly this low, uh, but particularly by the time it gets towards the Dead Sea. And um, Elijah, uh, um, uh, John the Baptist is baptizing people, and he's calling them to repent. The word for repent, we think repent is to say you're star- sorry, but the word is really metanoia. It means to change, means to go a different direction, means to relent. Sometimes it's translated in the scriptures. And so it's this idea of it, what you all need to do if you're going to truly follow God is you need to repent. You need to turn from one way and go to another way. And people are listening to that message because in the first century, everybody's trying to figure out what we should do to get right with God. Because if the Romans are over us, well, then we're not right with God. And so, again, we have the crick. And uh, I wonder if Jesus and John had stayed close over the years. Okay? We know when John sees Jesus coming in the text, he doesn't have to ask, well, who's that guy? Okay? They were cousins. They probably hung out when Jesus would come to Jerusalem. When Jesus is 12 and he gets lost at the temple, remember that story? John the Baptist might have been one of his relatives that was just a little bit older than him that helped try to find him. I wonder if they stayed up at night wondering about what things were going to happen ahead of them. If they traded stories of their mothers, got them together every once in a while to play. And so Jesus comes to be baptized. If you're in the first century reading this, you automatically, when you hear John is dressed in camel hair and with a leather belt, you've got to already be thinking about Elijah. Okay? With the message that he has, Matthew especially has already played it as close. And now Jesus comes, but it's an interesting question then. If Jesus is really the Messiah, why does he have to repent? Okay, what does Jesus have to repent from? I thought he was without sin, right? If you're a first century Jew reading this, you think, well, why does Jesus have to be baptized and repent? Well, actually, John asks that same question, right? John says, well, why would I baptize you? You should be baptizing me. Jesus tells him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, that seems good enough for John. Leaves us scratching our heads a little bit, right? Fulfill what righteousness? Then we get this great moment of Trinity. Jesus is standing there in the water. God the Father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And the spirit descends like a dove. Now that like a dove, we think of it as if it was a dove. But the text really describes, I don't know what, right? The spirit descends like a dove, sort of floating down. And we get this odd description we're not always sure what to do with. By the way, if you were in the first reading this in the first century, you'd have a lot of questions too. From there, the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. And we have a map here of this move. Uh, He would go from the Jordan, sort of past Jericho, to the Mount of Temptation to be tempted. Now, this Mount of Temptation, we can show it here. Sorry, choir. Um, Go ahead and skip to the Mount of Temptation. Uh, We'll get some video of this. The Mount of Temptation is where historically Christians have said Jesus may have slept while he was being tempted. There's now a cave and there's a sort of a chapel, sort of a church uh, built into this wall 
that shows uh, where Jesus may have slept. Now, we don't know if he actually slept there specifically or not. There are many caves along this route, but this is the area that he went to. And certainly plausible that in one of these caves, in that particular cave even, that uh, he went and was tempted. Uh, He's there for 40 days. And the text sets it up as if there's just three temptations. Um, But probably that's the way Jesus described it to the disciples. Remember, they're not there. So how do they know what happened? Well, Jesus would have had to have told them, and he might have told them with these particular temptations. But the text also seems to say for 40 days he's tempted. And what we get is about a two-minute conversation with with Satan, right? So there's a lot of different temptations, but Jesus sort of summarizes it with his disciples as these three major (coughs) temptations. And a lot of Christians have read this and remembered 1 John 2, where it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And a lot of Christians have looked at this and say, these are the, really the three ways that people are tempted. Okay? We're tempted by the lusts of our flesh, what our body wants. We're tempted with our eyes when we covet what we see. And we're tempted by the pride of life. We're tempted to, to find our own way and to be great and to be powerful And Christians have long said that this is sort of the three temptations that we all have, and it's also the three temptations that Jesus gets. Lust of the flesh, stones into bread. Jesus, you've been fasting for 40 days. Aren't you hungry? Turn these these stones into uh, bread. Don't, Don't go the hard way. Go the easy way. Lust of the eyes. Jesus, be great in front of everybody else. Throw yourself off the temple. You'll be caught. Pride of life. Bow to me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. All these kingdoms are yours if you'll just bow. Now, if you had the temptation to have all those kingdoms, if you had the temptation to do something great and be saved by angels, and if you had the temptation when you were really hungry after 30, 40 days to have bread, um, wouldn't you think those would be temptations? And aren't those still the same temptations we have all the time? So Jesus is out in the wilderness. Go ahead and show the wilderness. When we think wilderness in western Pennsylvania, we think woods because that's the wild place that's around us, the wild, untamed place. But in Israel, it's not woods. It's desert. It's rocks. It's stones. It's cliff. It's just uninhabitable region, uninhabitable region where it's wild and no one can really live there. So Jesus is in this area, and he responds with verses from the Torah to each of Satan's temptation. Now, if you're a first century Jew, you're already thinking when I say 40 days, you're thinking a lot of stuff, right? Moses is 40 years in the wilderness. Then he leads the people for 40 years in the wilderness. It rains for Noah for 40 days and for 40 nights. I mean, we got 40 after 40 after 40 because 40 is the number of preparation in the Bible. Okay, But if you're a first century Jew and you also are paying attention to the verses that Jesus are quoting, what you find is that they're all from the same area of the Bible. They're all from Deuteronomy right around chapter 8, coming from a few chapters before to, to a few chapters after. And in fact, the first temptation Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 8, and I want to read for you verses 2 and 3 because they have a whole lot to say about what's happening here. 
And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Then he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, first temptation, Jesus quotes the end of that, but if we read the beginning of it, what is the whole purpose of the people wandering in the desert? That God would test them. And we get confused because we use the word temptation and we use the word test, but in the Bible, they're the same word. Okay, they can both be translated anytime. We just switch them back and forth if we think it's right or not, because we think that God doesn't tempt us, but because sometimes God tests us. So we use the words back and forth, but it's the same word. And so Israel is taken out in the wilderness after all the slavery so that they can be tested. They can be tested to see if they're actually going to follow God's commandments or not. And we know because of the golden calf and we know because of the complaining and we know because of all kinds of stuff that they don't. So Jesus is taken out for 40 days into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested. But Jesus does not fail those testings. I mean, if you're reading this as a first century Jew, your mind is constantly going back to these Old Testament stories. And then suddenly it hits you. It hits you, especially as you read Matthew, the most distinctly Jewish gospel. What Jesus is actually doing in these stories is reliving Israel's history. He's going back and he's reliving, he's redoing the history of Israel. Let's look at them side by side, okay? We said that this story starts with creation. But in Jesus' story, it starts with birth, with incarnation. In fact, John writes it as a creation story. Remember how John starts? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. John specifically starts it as if this is a new creation story. We get a man named Abraham who has a miraculous child. Well, read the Gospel of Matthew. We have this lady named Mary, and she has a miraculous child. And if you even read the story according to Matthew, fair, uh, uh, the king gets mad because of this Messiah that's going to be born that the wise men tells him about. And what does he do? He kills all the firstborn male children in the region of Bethlehem trying to get to that child. Okay. If you're a first century Jew and you read that, you're instantly thinking of Exodus. You're thinking of what happened in Egypt. Remember the Exodus story, the parting of the Red Sea. Now, what does Jesus do after he gets older? He goes to the Jordan River and he's washed and he goes through and enters the land. Okay, this is the new Exodus, you understand? This is the new freedom. And when he goes in that water, he's going in and he is the new Moses. More than that, he goes through at the same place on the Jordan River where the people of Israel come into the promised land. Okay, this is the same spot in the river, right about within a kilometer where the people had crossed over when they came in to enter the land. Okay? So when he fulfills the righteousness, the way he tells John, it's because Israel this whole time had been struggling with repentance. 
Israel again and again struggles to repent, struggles to relent, struggles to go a different way, and yet Jesus repents even though he doesn't need to. And he undoes what Israel's going through. Israel wanders around the desert for the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus wanders around the wilderness for 40 days. But even though Israel complains the whole time and makes a golden calf, Jesus does not fall to the temptation. Jesus, like the conquest of the land, defeats the temptation. Then if you read in Matthew, if you were to keep going, you know what Jesus does next? He calls 12 disciples. He calls 12 disciples. You know what happens when they conquest the land next? They divide the land among the 12 tribes. Okay, the tribes become the major thing. And John the Baptist is clearly written as the forerunner. Okay, remember I said Elijah wore an animal skin cloak with a leather belt. John the Baptist is described the same way. Jesus is redoing the history of Israel. Except that instead of humanity... Instead of Israel failing again and again, Jesus is succeeding. He's everything Israel can't be. He's everything humanity can't be. He's the new Moses, the new Israel. And when he dies on the cross, he dies the death that we all deserve, but he doesn't deserve. He takes the punishment. He swaps stories with us, you understand? If you're a first century Jew reading this, You've got to be amazed. You've got to read more. Because Jesus is totally redoing not just Israel's story, but your story. And you've got to find out more. What does it mean to follow God now that Jesus is redoing the story? And why is this important to us, not in the first century, but in the 21st century? Because this is not just the first century person's story. This is your story. And Jesus is retelling your story. He's redoing this whole thing. Jesus rewrites and relives your life. And so if you're going to walk the way of Jesus, you better understand that there's a lot of your life that Jesus has already walked for you because you couldn't walk it yourself. He swaps your story. Have you been bad? Well, Jesus was good. And he takes the punishment for your badness and, and trades you. The problem is, this sounds cool. Isn't it kind of neat to think about this in terms of Israel's history? The, the thing is, this is not just a theological discussion. The problem is that for us, we don't fundamentally believe this. We don't fundamentally in our lives believe that Jesus trades our stories. Instead, we believe lies. And we might never admit them out loud. But lie number one, we think Jesus is distant and doesn't understand us. And in our darkest hour, maybe we say it out loud, but, but we believe this and we live this way every time we go it alone and we live our lives without any reference to Jesus. Anytime we just do our own thing, we believe this lie that Jesus is not close to us and that he doesn't understand us. But that's not the story, right? This is a story of a God who becomes flesh and enters our story. So anything you go through, Jesus understands from the inside, okay? And we are the only religion who can claim that, okay? You think you're tempted? Jesus is tempted in any way that we were. You grieve? Jesus wept. You feel betrayed? Jesus had this friend named Joseph, uh, Judas, right? 
You're nervous about surgery or something upcoming? Jesus sweat drops of blood waiting for the crucifixion. You think your back hurts, right? Jesus had his torn off by a whip called a cat of nine tails. Jesus understands what you go through. And he stays near you even when you feel that he's not. Because he's a part of your story now. He is actively working to write good endings to your story right now, even though you think maybe your story can't have a good ending. The other lie is that Jesus could never give me grace. That God could never forgive. If God really knew what I did when I was younger or what I'd been through, then then God would never forgive me. Maybe we wouldn't voice that, but we live it as truth every time we don't forgive ourselves or we stay stuck in our same patterns and in our same sins. Every time we beat ourselves up for not being good enough or doing enough or knowing enough. I had a person talk to me this week who deals with anxiety and depression. And one of the things he said to me was, he said, you know, I can't get this idea that God would love me. I don't love me. I would never forgive me for the things I've done and I continue to do and I continue to fall back at again and again and again. Why, he asks, would God love me? And I could have paid some false compliments, you know? Here's why God might love you. But instead, I just decided to lead into it. I have no idea why God would love you. In fact, God probably shouldn't love you. In fact, God probably shouldn't love me either. That's the whole point of grace. That God shouldn't love us, shouldn't give us grace, and does anyway. Again and again and again in Israel's story, they turn from God. And still, God keeps giving them grace. And God keeps calling them back. And he uses the wilderness. And he uses the exile. And ultimately, when they can't live up to the expectations, he enters their story and relives it for them. And that's exactly what he does with us. So let me say to you the truth of the matter. You will never be good enough. You will never be enough that God should love you. Okay, you just won't. But here's the truth. And some of you really need to hear it today. God loves you anyway. God loves you anyway. He gives you grace upon grace and love upon love anyway, even though you don't deserve it. That's the whole point of the story. And if you can't forgive yourself, that's a whole other problem. But God forgives you, and God gives you grace. And following in the way of Jesus means giving yourself a little grace because you don't have to be perfect. Jesus was perfect. You don't have to have it all together because Jesus was all together and he gives you his perfection. So stop caring about what everybody else thinks. Forgive yourself and follow in the way, the truth, and the life. Now listen, we still need to repent. We still need to relent. And some of you may have things you really need to lay out before God and say, all right, I'm not going to do that anymore. Some of you still are going to face temptations, right? But here's the difference. When we face temptations and when we need to repent, we don't do it to earn God's love. We do it in response to God's love and favor, which we already have. 
And that makes all the difference in the world. Because then I'm not motivated by shame and I'm not motivated by, sh- uh, by guilt. I am motivated by gratitude that Jesus already did these things for me. Now that may be a lot to think about, but it was in the first century also. And so it's a little tough to follow in this way of Jesus, but, but we start taking our steps and we pray that God would guide us and help us understand it along the way. May God relive and rewrite your story the same way he rewrote Israel's story. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.